You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 206, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of the podcast, I chatted with Michael Imperioli of the New York City band Zopa. We're all familiar with Imperioli from his Emmy Award-winning role as Christopher Moltisanti on HBO's The Sopranos. But in addition to acting, Michael has a long history of playing music in New York City. His current band, Zopa, released their long-awaited debut album, La Dolce Vita, in 2020. But Imperioli's roots in music reach all the way back to New York City's bustling downtown art scene in the 1980s. He got his start playing in a no-wave band called Black Angus, and after answering an ad in the Village Voice, joined an early incarnation of Feely's offshoot, Wild Carnation, in the early 1990s. Along the way, he's put on gigs at Maxwell's in Hoboken, including one featuring Miracle Legion and Young Woo, befriended the late Lou Reed, and played shows with Zopa in places like Portugal. Michael and I talked all about his fascinating background in music and how Zopa came to be. We also chatted about the band's recent experiences recording with notable indie rock producer John Agnello, his long collaborative relationship with director Tom Gilroy, what inspired him to incorporate Lou Reed as a character in his novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, and way more. Plus, Imperioli picked some awesome records, including some choice cuts from L.A. Witch, My Bloody Valentine, and Pylon. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also so encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. Right. I'm here with Michael Imperioli. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. We're going to talk all about Zopa, the string of gigs you have coming up, all that good stuff. But I did want to talk to you about your background a little bit. I know you kind of got into music through your friend, uh, Tom Gilroy. Tell us a little bit about that. Tom Gilroy was someone I met in 83 in acting school, and he... Uh, had been in some bands in Boston when he was in college. Uh, he was also a DJ for the Boston College Station. So he, um, Boston College would host a lot of shows and get, they were kind of instrumental, some of the DJs, in getting some of the cool bands, um, like Psychedelic Furs and their first tour, even U2 and R.E.M. Um, actually, Michael Stipe produced... Uh, yeah, yeah. I think both of Tom's movies. Tom and Mike. I met Michael when I was 19 years old. I know him a really long time, but I met him through uh, Michael through Tom Gilroy. Um, and Tom was in one of their early videos as well. So there was a musical connection. Uh, and, and I learned a lot about music from Tom. And he turned me on to a lot of bands that I... I, I, I didn't know a lot about 
the punk scene when I was in high school. I was very uh, kind of trapped in this suburban FM radio kind of land. Um, and then I was in this, I didn't go to college. I went to some acting classes in New York City when I was uh, 17. It started spending most of my time there. So the first band was, uh, there was no singer. It was all instrumental. Uh, I <laughs> I bought a nylon string acoustic guitar because it was the cheapest one in the store and then bought a little round pickup, which I glued to the guitar and then would plug in and just make weird yeah, yeah. sounds using the settings on the amplifier to make strange sounds in it. And that and it was it was kind of a percussive rhythm thing with weird sounds is that, that that's what I contributed to the band, um, and we did uh, we played um, no we never recorded a record but we played a couple of shows back in the day and um, that was the first band and then I sang in a band that eventually became Wild Carnations yeah so uh, that. Uh, um, it was a trio at first. It still is a trio, actually, because they still make music. Um, and I sang and we wrote some songs together. And I wrote some lyrics. We made some demos that actually uh, that I have that are pretty cool. Um, and what happened was I started getting really busy with acting, you know, like I actually started getting acting work, which I had, had never done that. And uh, I, I had to leave the country for an extended period of time to go do a job. And um, Chris O'Donovan is a, was a drummer yeah, in the band. and Richard and, Barnes is the other member, right? Yeah. So they, they were ready to really kind of focus, and I didn't want to hold them up, so I left that band to go work and uh brenda souder yeah wound up the bass playing, player you know, of the feelings yeah so she became the singer and bass player and some of the songs that we wrote they recorded with uh brenda's lyrics and and melodies and stuff which is kind of fun their first album has some of the songs that we we worked on yeah, that's that's really cool and interesting to me, especially considering the fact that you started when you came to New York and started playing music. You're playing in no wave bands, really kind of more experimental <laughs> stuff. And the Wild Carnation, the songs on that first record, like Dodger Blue, you know, it's yeah. kind of more of a traditional rock and roll indie rock sound. How'd you wind up? playing in a band like that when you started kind of doing stuff a little more experimental beforehand? Um, I think the experimental nature allowed for a lack of ability because <laughs> yeah. um, you could get away with making noise and, yeah. you know, and um, the Wild Carnations was about three years later and I had learned a little more about playing yeah. music, and and I was a better guitar. I didn't play guitar with those guys, but I was a better guitar player by then. I was writing songs on guitar, and learning melody and singing. Um, but they were just, you know, 
the Wild Carnations was kind of in the feelies, REM, a yeah. little bit, uh, replacements a little bit, edge to it, more indie, 80s indie rock. Um, but I love that music. Totally. You know, those bands. One of a, a really big band for me, still today, and they, they're very good friends of mine. They became really good friends, was Miracle Legion, um, which I'm sure you know them. Yes, absolutely. Mark is a very good... I actually was in from, one of their From Connecticut, videos. originally. Great uh, pillars of like New England music in the yes, 80s. Yes, and on college rock radio as well. What we I saw them for the first time in... 86 at Maxwell's was yeah. the first time I ever saw them play. And I didn't know anything about them. And Tom knew them from his Boston college days because they were just starting to tour around then in the early 80s, start playing gigs. Uh, I had I'd never heard of them, and we went to see them, and I was just knocked out. Um, their sound and Mark's presence on stage and Ray, his guitar work, and as a band, just what they did was really specific and, and original and beautiful. Um, they were a big influence. That's great. Yeah, I was listening to an interview that you did last year where you referenced that show at Maxwell's. And since Maxwell's is my favorite rock and roll club of all time, you know, I've had many, many fun nights there seeing live music. It was cool that you pointed out that show as one of your favorite shows you ever attended. They were amazing. You know, they did it. Tom and I wound up forming a theater company. After the Black Angus, we started a, a theater company called Machine Full, and we were very—it was a very like indie, off-off Broadway company. And the fr we we, the first play we put on was an Arthur Miller play called Incident at Vichy, and we we needed to raise some money. And Tom was a bartender at Maxwell's. Yeah, worked for was it Tom Fallon who was one of the owners? Steve Fallon, yeah. Steve Fallon, Tom Fallon, someone else I know. Steve Fallon. <laughs> so Steve let us do a benefit. Yeah. And Miracle Legion played with Young Woo. Do you know Young Woo? Yes, a great Feelies offshoot. It's actually yeah. Dave Weckerman's birthday today. So Is happy it? birthday, Dave Weckerman. Yeah. <laughs> the front the front man, yeah. So Young Woo and Miracle Legion did the first machine full benefit for ARP so we could put on our play. Um uh and that was at Maxwell's. I also saw a really one there was a I was always a really big Pixies fan. Yeah. So between Pixie tours, Black Francis did a solo show at Maxwell's with just him on electric guitar playing Pixie songs. And uh that was kind of for me at the time was like outrageous. I got I was in the front of the state. I got there really early. I was the guy who goes gets there early and wants Camps to be right out, in yeah. front of the stage. And right in front of Black Francis for an hour and a half with him playing Pixie songs. It was like one of the great moments of my life. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that must have been a great show. I have a great tape of a Pixie show at Maxwell's, I think in 1988. I'll send it to you afterwards so you can yeah. listen to it. It sounds we really played, good. We played, Topa played Maxwell's once. Yeah, I miss that place. It was a great venue. It was great. It was really special. It was cool. You mentioned about starting a, a theater company with uh, Tom Gilroy, a collaborator of yours. And when you came to New York in the 80s, you know, especially the decade before in the 70s, there's so many artists that came to New York as poets or as actors. Uh, you know, I think I think of Patti Smith immediately, obviously a poet first. 
and was involved in experimental theater and stuff and then got into music afterwards. Yeah. And I feel like people don't know the same thing with Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine of, uh, you know, Richard Hell, one original member of television. They were in New York first, you know, strictly as poets and they were doing like their own magazines and shit like that and then realized hey we could do music too since you're an artist that you know acts and does a lot of other different things you've written a novel uh, did the kind of same thing happen for you did you come to new york with your focus on one medium and then kind of something else was attractive to you that you decided oh, i want to do theater and act as well what was the process like for you? For me, I, I went to New York to study acting. And through meeting people like Tom, you know, he turned me on to a lot of what was happening in the East Village at the time, like the performance art, yeah. which was, you know, this kind of cross performance art came kind of out of the punk scene and yeah. also out of the experimental theater. Those and... Um, Tom's first performance piece was, it was two monologues. It was Michael Stipe and Tom. And Michael did this thing. It was called Sugar Cane and Coffee Cup. And they did it at PS122. And Michael did this travelogue monologue, almost like an Anthony Bourdain, like slideshow, which I ran the slides for. Cool. <laughs> at PS122. And Tom did a um, kind of a Spalding Grayish type of thing. Um, yeah, there was a lot... A lot of, for instance, like um, Richard Edson, who was in Stranger Than Paradise, and John Lurie, who was all starred in Stranger Than Paradise, and Astor Ballant, all were musicians. You know, uh, Richard was in Sonic Youth. Yeah. As the drummer, one of the early drummers in the band. And obviously, John Lurie was in uh, The Lounge Lizards. But... The independent film scene came also, the New York independent film scene, a lot of that came from the punk world. Like Amos Poe, who did The Blank Generation, yep. uh, that movie, and he went into doing, you know, features. Uh, so there was that, that whole soup of, I wasn't aware of it, but when I did, it was really exciting because, you know, you, you felt you didn't have to be limited to just being an actor. You could be in a band a no wave band and you know learn your instrument as you as you as you as you're creating music and there was a freedom in that um i think what happened when zopa first formed in 2006 i was already on the sopranos and people kind of think oh now you're an actor and you're known so you're trying music and it was you know we're trying to write a novel it was net that was never the thing it was yeah. always what we were doing at the time um and it was really the spirit of what was going on in new york particularly downtown it's cool because it doesn't seem like there's any intimidation or anything like that to approach something else within a different creative medium especially during that time when there were so many different so many people just trying different things and taking a risk, doing something different. Yeah, taking risks. And there were a lot of venues in, in Manhattan uh, where you could do that. Places like um, 8BC and ABC No Rio, Rio yeah. and PS122, uh, you know, the Pyramid Club. Um, and then actual more traditional theaters because the theater company started doing plays, you know, Arthur Miller and then Tom started writing plays and we started 
produced, putting up his stuff. And there was the workhouse and the Walker Street Playhouse, both in Tribeca. They don't exist anymore. Um, but you could actually kind of put up plays there. And it, now it's very expensive to do that. In Manhattan, at least. I'm sure there are other places you could. Yeah. So we had mentioned connecting with uh, Chris O'Donovan and Richard Barnes before. How would you first uh, connect with them and decide to start writing songs with them? The Village Voice. I answered an ad in The <laughs> Village Voice. Uh, they were looking for a singer. I think they mentioned, they might I don't remember if it was like Pixies meets Feelies. I don't remember what they said in the ad, but the, obviously it was some musical reference that I related to. And I went out to Hoboken at a studio yeah. and we met and they had some songs, you know, and I just started, and I had a notebook of lyrics and we just started making music. I love hearing about people connecting in the village voice. Uh, do you know, you know, Richard Barone, uh, Barone by any chance? Yeah. Uh, the bongos. I don't know him personally. I yeah. know who he is. So. Great. You know, I'm a big Maxwell's guy, so I love the bongos fan of his as well that his first band same thing uh connecting with this guy glenn morrow who runs bar none records uh he had actually richard barone lived out in bay ridge at the time and these guys were in jersey and that's how they connected through the village voice yeah the voice was i think the uh matchmaker to a lot of uh, indie bands in new york without totally. a doubt yeah so zopa came together in 2006 the story is really cool because i know you originally met your drummer almo when he was just a kid uh, tell us a little bit about how the band formed very strange formation because so towards the end of 2005 uh, you know i never stopped playing music and i had i ma would make a, i had a lot of demos that i just made on my own but i really missed playing with other musicians, and I hadn't been doing it for a while. Um, so I started thinking, I gotta first find a drummer. For some reason, I thought that would be smart, to be a guitar player, singer, with a drummer, and then we'll see if we wanted to add other people. Um, so I met with someone I used to play with, and it didn't, didn't work out. It just, we weren't in the same place anymore musically someone from Black Angus days, and uh, it just wasn't happening. And I didn't know what to do, really. I was going to think of put, taking an ad. I wasn't really sure, but I went to a party, and I, I ran into an old friend, Michael Ty, who... Um, Michael Ty was an actor that I met when I was 25. Michael was 18, and we did a movie together called Postcards from America about the artist David Wonorovich. Michael's brother, Olmo, played... David Wonorovich as an eight-year-old boy, and Michael Ty, who was 10 years older than Olmo, played him as a teenager. Um, and Michael and I became friends, and we had Michael come... Tom was in the movie as well, Tom Gilroy, as was John Ventimiglia, who was on The Sopranos. And uh, the next play we did in the theater company, we had Michael join us, so Michael and I became friends. Michael went on to be in Jeff Buckley's band, was a wow, guitar yeah. player on Grace and, and toured with Jeff, became very close with him. And I ran into Michael at a party in the uh, thanks, around Thanksgiving of 2005. And for some reason I asked about his brother. So now it's, this is uh, 
2005, so it's uh, quite a while later, like 15 years later. How's your brother? He said, oh, almost a drummer. And he works <laughs> at the Strand Bookstore. And that's all he said. He didn't say what kind of music he played. He didn't say he's in a band, he's not in a band. He just said he's a drummer, he works at the Strand. So for some reason, I get it in my head that he's the guy. I don't know why to this day. I really don't. I can't say why I was hell-bent on meeting up with him. I start going to the Strand. The Strand on Broadway, you know, in, uh, you know where it is on 12th yes. Street. The employees wear name tags. So I figured that's easy. I'll just go and look. <laughs> I don't know what he, the guy looks like. I haven't seen him since he's eight years old. I'll just look for the guy with Olmo name tag. I start going <laughs> once or twice a week. For a month, I can't find Olmo. Finally, I asked somebody there, does a the guy named Olmo work? He goes, yeah, he works in the warehouse. So I write a note and I said, can you give this to him? And then a few days later, Olmo calls me and I say, I, I want to play music. I, your brother said you're a drummer. He goes, all right. So we meet at a rehearsal studio. I have a couple of ideas and we just start playing and just felt really good. He goes, do you want to... Uh, work with a bass player. I said, yeah, that'd be great. He goes, well, I went, this guy I went to high school with who plays bass. Um, turned out he was the cousin of a guy who managed Tom and I at one point. Wow. It's very weird. And my wife was friends with his father. It's a very strange connection. And then the three of us met and that was it. And we've been together since. That's wonderful, wonderful origin story. And yeah. the debut record, La Dolce Vita, which came out digitally in 2020, released on vinyl last year. It was a long time coming since the band formed in 2006. I know there was a bit of a hiatus. What precipitated the band reforming and putting out this record now? Um, so oddly enough, actually, La Dolce Vita was the first name of the band. Yeah. <laughs> and then you so switched it. To confuse it, yeah. things, we decided to name our first album. We changed the name of the band because it wasn't a good name, but... We started practicing and writing music at the end of February, 2006. Uh, in May, I go off to Portugal to do a movie. And my friend, I, I had friends in Lisbon who had a club and they said, why don't you guys do a show here? We had only been practicing for two months. The guys come over when the movie wraps and we do our first show in Lisbon, uh, I'm still kind of amazed we actually pulled this off because we had a bunch of songs. Uh, somehow we wrote a bunch of songs in two months, two months, and um, there was the the club was very popular. There was you know uh, there was some buzz about the band, and 500 people showed up to see us play our first. That's show. a great first, yeah. And we weren't we were not really prepared for it, but we did it. Um, so the first show we ever played together was in June of 2006 in Portugal. Uh, and then from 2006 to 2013, we played a shitload of yeah. shows. We played everywhere in the city that would take us and other East Coast. We did an East Coast tour at one point. We did a few shows in L.A. But we played the shit out of New York City. Um, and we recorded the record in 2012. And I moved in 2012. I said, we got to record this album before I move. 
and we did a couple of shows in LA in 2013, but then it just became impossible to keep it going because I was living in, in California. And then um, we recorded this record and we really had no way to get it out because we weren't on social media. Um, we didn't have a label, we had no help, and it kind of sat on the shelf for a while, basically. When the book came out, I was still living in California in 2018, I started doing live readings, yeah. and I would have either Omo or Elijah accompany me. So we started working together again. And then I moved back to New York last about a year ago, and we started playing again. But before I moved back, I got on social media right before the pandemic and I started posting a lot during the pandemic and a lot about music and a lot of people were into some of the musical posts. So we put out the record on Bandcamp and people started listening to it. Um, and that's, you know, kind of how it started. And, and I also started making connections with a lot of other musicians. So when I moved back, we started playing again. And we started doing shows with some of these bands that I had connected with over the quarantine, over social media, and we became friends and now, you know, playing shows with them. Like Habibi, Girl Dick, uh, now 2CB is another one. Um, uh, Box Slider, I knew the singer, uh, Honey Chell Coleman from way back, but um, we kind of reconnected over social media and stuff like that. Yeah, Habibi is an excellent, excellent band. One of my favorite bands for sure. Yeah. You you mentioned that you recorded the a album like eight years before you released it. You know, that's a long time for a finished album to be stashed <laughs> yeah. away. Like so much can change for you personally, for for the types of for the type of songwriter you are at that point after like half a decade, basically. What do you remember your reaction being when you first revisited the recordings before you released them? Um the, I mean, I always liked them and I always believed in it. Like I said, the, the challenge was, like, it even was outside of, like, Lisbon and because we were kind of, there was a scene there. But it, it wasn't easy to get people to come to shows in New York, you know. Back then, it was before social media. It wasn't always the easiest thing to get an audience, you know. Yeah. I mean, some clubs had built in, if it was the right night, there's going to be people there. Um. You know, or some clubs would, would advertise, and if they'd advertise that, you know, you could get some people. But there were nights when there weren't a lot of people in the audience. Um, so social media was a very, was a real gift for us to get the music out, and people started listening. That was my biggest surprise, was that people were listening and liking it, and kind of getting the spirit of the music what we were trying to do musically. And I think it, it was, part of it was people following me on Instagram and getting my musical taste yeah. and then seeing where this, how this music fits in that we're making. But I think it was, um, it's actually like the stuff we're writing now is a bit different yeah. in sound um, in a good way. Um you know, the sound's a little bit, you know, we've evolved as people. Omo actually wound up marrying my cousin and has two boys with her. Wonderful. Uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. They have a nine and ten year old um, and they, they live together in Queens. So we've all, you know, 
gotten older and have had different experiences, and, and that informs the music as well, and evolved as musicians in yeah, different ways. Too. For sure. Yeah. I love the record, though. I feel like it really blossoms sonically around the middle of the record. The first few tracks are great punk tracks, and I love In Pink, which is the middle track on the record. Probably my favorite song on the record. has like great call and response vocals, an awesome horn section. Reminds me of like Patti Smith or like some Stiff Records uh, stuff. Tell me oh, a little bit cool. about that track and how that song come together. Um, a lot of that track hinges on the bass line, and that's Elijah obviously coming up with. I mean, it's really the whole, the song really um, is structured around that bass line. Yeah. Um, that might have been the inception for the song. Uh, to be honest, it's a song about war crimes and torture but you wouldn't, <laughs> I don't mind you, people dance to it because it has a catchy beat <laughs> that's always the best when the lyrics really contrast with the mood of the song because it, yeah. it has a real upbeat fun mood that track it, it also reminds me of like clash stuff too like San, something on sandinista or something something like it's, that yeah it's the song was written uh, the at least lyrically uh after the those photographs came out of the Abu Ghraib prison. Yeah. Um, with all that torture and humiliation and things yeah. like that that were going on because it was, you know, I was feeling like seeing this, it's one thing, uh, the, the horror of this being done and inflicted on people. And then us seeing it becoming almost desensitized to it and and uh it was very strange seeing those images come you know then these this was inflicted by our you know troops yeah. onto people who some of whom were completely innocent and had just were like rounded up and you know uh, you know they'd raid they they'd have a suspect in one building and they'd raid raid the whole thing and take all the men and some of the and some children too you know and uh that's what that song is about, you know, yeah. and the horror of that, and just the strange strangeness. Of, you know, now that song was probably written two thousand six or seven. You know, now those kind of images are so more. You, you get there's the internet wasn't as big then yeah. as it is now, right? You know, and news and the way things are disseminated. What, what it wasn't. A, it was quite quite i mean it still would be shocking but then it was even more so but then you're like oh so now we're going to see this kind of stuff as a regular thing what is this doing to us as a society you know what does it say about us that we this is a this is part of war this is you know this is uh, acceptable or i don't know yeah. questioning all that stuff obviously yeah. excellent excellent tune and it's a great midpoint on the record for sure for your new single, you worked with the great John Agnello, uh, incredible engineer and producer, having worked with some of your favorite bands. They're also my, some of my favorite bands, too, like Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, and Kurt Vile. How'd you connect with him, and what was it like being in the studio with him? Um, I had always wanted to work with him for the lot, especially the last few years. We have a lot of mutual friends. Yeah. Um, I, we've never met, but I always heard. I always kept hearing, "You got to work with John. You got to work with John. Um, he's the best and just a good guy, and would get you." 
Um, there was a band that we did a lot of shows with back in the day that recorded with him, um, that loved him. And um, so we wrote this song, in, in, and it, uh, when we did our first show back, we performed it, and the crowd just seemed to dig it. You could just feel it. Like, yeah. You could see them moving to it. So I was like, we should just record this as a single, make a video, release it, rather than wait till we have enough material to do a new album. And we should get John in yellow. I mean, I was like, this this would be right. So we contacted him, and he was free. And we sent him a demo, and he liked it. And um, we went into Kaleidoscope in Union City for two days. Uh, and he produced it with Elijah, because Elijah produced the first album. And John and Elijah worked together. Um, and John is just great. I mean, he's just really good at... Um, He's really good at bringing out your strengths, playing to your strengths, helping you get the right sound. Um, you know, being honest, but not but not trying to take over. You know, yeah. what I mean, not not trying to make it his or to his thing. You know, he wants to bring out your best work, and just makes it really fun. And his enthusiasm and his spirit. And his kindness and his respect, you know, just makes for this great, great working environment where you feel comfortable to take risks. Yeah, he's hilarious. So also very funny guy. Very so, funny. Yeah, and really great funny. guy. And knows a hell of a lot. Doesn't yeah. play any music, you know, which I found really kind of surprising. But which I don't know if I believe. I mean, he might just be humble, but he's a. Uh, certainly knows music really, really well and knows what, what works and stuff. So I didn't know about him until recently that, <clears throat> you know, when he was starting out, he also worked on a lot of, like, hair metal stuff. He was in that book recently that Tom Bejour wrote about the whole hair metal scene in the 80s, and he's, like, quoted in it as working. I can't remember exactly what he worked on, but it's cool. He's a versatile engineer for sure. Yeah, he's really versatile, and he really, he made it, you know, he knows how to set up the room right, you know, to where to put the mics, and um, it was really fun. I mean, his enthusiasm, and uh, we had a blast with him. Well, I mean, I hope to do the next thing we, we record, I want to do it with him. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So you've been mentioning that you joined social media a couple of years ago and people really reacted positively to your music posts. Uh, one that a lot of people in Brooklyn uh, music scene and around here were really pumped about was you posted about it, uh, about my friend Emma DeCorse of I Am The Polish Army, uh, her solo record. And she's like a really, really good songwriter. Uh, she's based in Nashville now, but a friend of mine as well. So it was cool to see you elevate her uh, on your Instagram like that. How do you go about finding new music and what do you find typically appeals to you? Um, I think I found Emma on uh, social media. We have a lot of mutual friends in the music scene, especially. Um, I really like uh, turning people on to other yeah. bands. I mean, Instagram is a, a really great way to find new bands. And so is uh, some of the streaming platforms because you can just 
you know, find stuff that's similar and things you're not aware of. I mean, in the past, it was going to shows. Yeah. You know, uh, which I still like to do a lot. Um, and uh, I think it's people who just really express their individuality that they're not caught up in just a genre of music or or, or, or um, this you can you can tell when somebody's really passionate and someone's really making an individual statement through their music um, yeah her music in particular is very authentic there that was what really struck me when I first saw her live was just the authenticity yeah. and just how raw a lot of her songs are emotionally and just a really solid songwriter and convey that's her a good message way to like it. that. Yeah. Yeah. And she's uh, just very passionate and very, her sound is really, um, I think unique. Yeah, for sure. She's a really good songwriter. Yeah. She's got a new record, I think on the way too. So I know we can't wait to hear it. Yeah. She's awesome. Um, uh, the uh, another band that I discovered just from going to show was Bardo Pond, who I love, who's from Philadelphia. Um, I hadn't seen them, and I just read something about them, and I went to see them at the Mercury Lounge, and that was one of those nights where you just get knocked, knocked out. I mean, their sound is just amazing. You know what they do is very original and beautiful. Totally, yeah. Matador just released. A reissued, I think one of their records. I got, I got it recently, or it was like last year already. But great, great, great band. Yeah, and um, so Two CB is is going to play with us at uh, Baby's All Right on the seventeenth of February. That's the video release um, event, and uh, we played on the bill with them and Habibi at Baby's All Right in November, and it was. Uh, I, 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 that was a really fun night. Those playing with those two bands, um, and Two CB was really new then. They still are, but that was I think one of their first shows ever, um, and they're really cool. Yeah, um, I think, I think what they're doing is really special. Chase Noel is the drummer, and she sings in that band. She also plays drums in Come Girl Eight. I think she Great played band. in a yeah. video at one time. Yeah as well um and lily who plays keyboards that also was in mystery lights who we played uh we did two shows with them in uh seattle at the freak out fest so it's kind of meeting meeting these people and they're a lot of them are in different couple of different bands yeah there's a cool indie scene i think now in new york right now that i'm really seeing at there was there was kind of a, a, an emptiness to it for a little bit, but it seems like there's a lot of really smart, accomplished people making indie rock right now in New York. Yeah, I, something I definitely wanted to ask you, since you've played music in New York in the 80s and 90s, and now you're playing music in New York now, you know, a lot of people that played music back then will look at the music scene now and say, you know, New York is dead. It's, you know, it is obviously different, but, you know, I tend to disagree with that. And I think you may also as well. Uh, what are your impressions of New York now after kind of being away from the music scene and 
diving back into it, uh, particularly the music scene? I think it kind of, there was a dead spot around, um, uh, I would say maybe like 2010. Yeah. Eight, nine, ten. It there was definitely a dip. You know, in two thousand, a lot started happening for a while. Um, you know, some big bands that happened, like the Strokes and Yeah Yeah Yeahs, of course. And um, but there seemed to be some good clubs and good things happening. And then there was this weird period around two thousand ten. Um, but I feel like. You know, it's hard being, uh, you know, an artist just starting out young, broke, you know, to come and live in New York. It's yeah. really expensive. It's not easy. It's a big place. It's spread out. It's it's hard to find your way. But so I think the people who are coming, the young people to make music are very driven and uh, often very accomplished. Um, so... Uh, it's a different scene. It's not just this. It's not so much people who just have can come and have nothing and really, you know, um, start so much from scratch. But you are getting people who are really good artists, yeah. I think, um, starting out, starting bands. There's some really good venues, you know, like TV, especially in Brooklyn. There's some really cool venues like TVI and Baby's All Right and... Um, um, St. Vitus, there's, you know, Bowery Electric's still a great venue. We did a virtual uh, benefit there. That was the first thing we played together again since we came back. Um, Jesse Mallon's been really, um, I think, a real instrumental part of the New York downtown scene. He's really kept a lot of things together and, and kept people going, especially during the pandemic. There was a lot of live streams and benefits and He's uh, really, really um, central to that scene. Yeah, Jesse Mallon is someone I really admire, obviously, as a musician. He's a great songwriter, but also as someone who's invested a lot in New York City. You know, I, he was one of the owners of Coney Island High, right? The place on in the East Village that, I guess, closed in the late 90s. And then I th he was involved with that other... Coney Island baby spot, and I don't know if he still is, but he's just been the one that was brownies, the old yes, brownies. the old brownies, yeah. yeah. That and went. Away, I think that closed. Now but Berlin is still open. Now the they on get this, Michael. They renamed um, Coney Island baby East Berlin right. to make it super confusing with the other Berlin that's exactly. on the same block, but. <laughs> That's on. That's it's. It's actually North Berlin. It's north of <laughs> yeah. the other one. But Berlin's a yeah. great space. Yeah. Actually, the first practice Zopa did since the, you know last year when we got back together was at Berlin. Jesse let us um, use the stage there. But I saw um, Hennessy. Great. That's uh, um, uh, New York Dolls da guy's daughter. Uh, That's uh, yeah. David's David Johansson's, Johansson's daughter. Yeah, daughter. she's excellent. She's really good. Leah Hennessy. Her yeah. band I saw at Berlin a couple of years ago, which yeah. was great. And another band I like, not a New York band, but I saw them in New York for the first time, was L.A. Witch. I really like them. I think they're doing some really cool Incredible stuff. Incredible band. One of my favorites, too. They're on tour right now with uh, Trip Tides, one of my favorite bands. Great, like L.A. 
psych pop band. Yeah. Very birdsy. And oh, I wanted to ask you about the perfume burned his eyes because I loved it. I read it a couple of years ago. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, it tells a fictional story of a teen boy who befriends Lou Reed. How'd you come up with the idea for the plot of the book? And why'd you decide to make Lou Reed a, a character in it? Well, the book started out just as a coming-of-age story. Yeah. Uh, Lou Reed and Rachel were not in the book. Um, it was 2013. My middle child was 16, going through, you know, 16, teenage 16, yeah, problems. Stuff, yeah. And I was really trying to relate. I wanted to write a book, and I wanted to write a coming-of-age novel you know, in the vein of like Catcher in the Rye, that was a big one for me. You know, from the first person, um, hearing that voice, because I wanted to connect to what he was going through, my son at the time. Yeah. And three months into the writing, Lou died. Um, and that hit me on a lot of levels as, as a New Yorker, as a fan, because he was a, a hero of mine, you know, and... I did get to know him and we became friends uh, in 2010. No, 2003, like the last 10 years of his life, we were friends. So it, it was a big deal when he passed and it was, it was rough. Uh, and for some reason in that mourning period, I was like, what if Lou is living in the building and the kids is... It's not just coming of age, but it's coming of age in the orbit of Lou Reed. And particularly that period in the mid-70s when he was living with uh, Rachel Humphreys. Uh, and where he was living, which was the Upper East Side, Midtown East, kind of, in this rather posh apartment building. But I, I, I did a lot of research. Well, I, I did research for the book, but I knew a lot about that period of his life just from my interest as a fan. So... I thought that would be a, an interesting... See, he, he was out there, you know, like, using a lot of drugs, and but very creative, too, at the same time. I think it was a very difficult period of his life, but I thought um, um, among that chaos, it could be in, an interesting place for this story to pan out. Yeah. So how'd you wind up meeting and developing a relationship with Lou Reed? He, he has this public persona... You know, I am a huge admirer of him as well. Like, such a New York icon, such a fan of all of his music. What was he like? How'd you meet him? Um, <laughs> well, we became friends in 2003, right? At the Knitting Factory. He was doing a concert at the Knitting Factory. And uh, I asked my, it was sold out, and I asked my manager if, they, if she could get me tickets, because then, by then I was on The Sopranos, and they had access to different PR people, so she called Lou's publicist, and they got me tickets. My wife and I went, and uh, the show, it was the, ex, the uh, Ecstasy album he had released, which is a very underrated record, yeah. actually. It's rock Minuet and, you know, Ecstasy. There's some really good songs on that record. The show was incredible. Like, just knocked me. I mean, he was like 60, I think, 61 or two. And it was just so rock and passionate and everything I had hoped and more. 
And we were getting up to leave, and his publicist said, oh, Lou wants to see you backstage. Now, I didn't know he even knew I was there or knew who I was or anything. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, Lou wants to, wants to see you. And we went backstage, and he came right over me, gave me this big hug, and uh, was a fan of The Sopranos. And um, it, it was kind of blew my mind, you know, and... Um, but the funny thing is, I had really met him, so that was 2003, I had really met him in 1992, although he didn't remember that, <laughs> and was, and he didn't know who I was. So I was at a Knicks game, and he was there, he, on the escalator, and I had just got cast in a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol, and I was playing Undine, who was a friend of Lou's, and I was like, this is great. I used to see Lou walk around the village. Yeah. I lived in the village in my 20s, and you'd see him walking around. He lived on Christopher Street at the time. But I never approached him. And I was like, this could be the, an icebreaker. The problem was he was furious that they were making a movie about Valerie Solanas, who yeah. shot and almost they killed were... Andy. Yeah. But I went up to him anyway, and I said, hi, I'm an actor. Um I'm, I'm in this movie. I know you're not too happy about it. It's called I Shot Andy Warhol. And he went, I think it's despicable. They're making a movie about that psychotic bitch. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand. I said, but I'm actually playing a friend of yours, Undine. And he went, good luck. And he turned away, walked away. And I was like, oh, my God. I felt so bad. And then, like, he looked over his shoulder at me. And he, a couple of times he went, so I walked back up to him uh, and he went, listen, he put his arm around me. He said, uh, do good work, work hard, and just remember Undine was very, very funny. And that was it. And the book actually, that, that encounter really informs the book a lot because it's that nastiness, because he could be, he was a complicated dude. Yeah. He could be, I know people who had the most horrific experiences with him and and yet he could also be very, very, very kind. And he was to me both in the span of 30 seconds. So I think that stuck with me. And when I started writing, um, that was there, you know. And then after he died and when I started writing it, it was a really nice way to spend time with him in my mind, you know. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's an Excellent, excellent book and a really nice tribute to Lou Reed, who, you know, obviously meant a lot to you, means a lot to me, too. He's such a great New York figure and musician yeah. as well. Did you see the movie, the documentary, The Velvet Underground? Yeah, it was excellent. It was excellent. And the that last scene, like right by the credits when it's after The Velvets and it's just Lou talking to Andy... I was very touching. That very. Some, somehow that scene really, really was touching. You know, seeing them. I guess they had a falling out, and then they were had patched things up by then. But that movie was very, very moving. That documentary really touched me a lot. Really, really well done documentary. So, you're about to head out on tour. You're playing Babies All Right on the 17th. Super exciting. Any surprises in store for... For the show, what can people expect? New material? Well, we're going to show the video, which nice. uh, Victoria, my wife Victoria and uh, Lisa Rinzler, who is a cinematographer that shot um, 
a movie that I did called Cabaret Maxime in Lisbon, but also she shot Trees Lounge by Steve Buscemi. She shot Menace to Society and Dead Presidents by the Hughes Brothers, as some Vim Vendors films. So her and Victoria become really close and they collaborated on this video um, that, uh, that we just finished last night editing wow. and completed and it's so we're going to show that before the between the bands between 2cb and us and uh, i'm really excited to for people to see it super exciting i'm excited for it i'll be there <laughs> pumped for it great so i told my friend andrew that i was interviewing you and he's a bit of a gear and pedal head so he wanted me to ask you what your guitar setup is i know you play a jazz master, right? But is it did Jaguar. you modify Jaguar? Did you modify the pickups at all, or do you yeah. have any go-to pedals? People think it's a jazz master because it has humbuckers. Um, so I I bought a jazz. It's a '66 jazz master J Jaguar, um, <laughs> same age as me, uh, and um, I modified it with humbuckers because that's what Kurt Cobain did. Because I, I I'm a big Kurt Cobain fan and I loved his guitar sound. So when when we started Zopa, um, there was something in his guitar sound that I, I I thought would be interesting to approach in some ways. Um, so it's that. You know, not, I use a MXR Distortion Plus. I use a Big Muff. Um, I use a MXR Phaser. Uh, Phase One Hundred. Um, I was using a, uh, boss digital delay, but now I'm using an Ibanez analog delay, which I like a little bit better. Um, I, I just got, uh, this great, um, Dunlop wah pedal. That's really cool. Nice. That has a, a couple of different settings and does some tone shifting things. That's really fun. Uh, I've been using this reverberator. I forgot the name of the brand that makes that. That's kind of fun and has some interesting sounds. And uh, um, the va uh, what's that called? I forget. The uh, it's MXR uh, vibe chorus vibe thing. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Cool. Not too much, but um. Yeah. And amps, uh, I'm not really fussy about it. Yeah. I use a lot of different amps, especially if you're playing different venues. I, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I do most of it with the pedals. Just kind of, kind of get a clean, warm sound from the amps and then just, yeah, use the pedals. And you're working on the next Zopa record now. How would you compare the songs you're writing now uh, to the debut the the new the stuff we're writing now has a little bit more of a moving from more from new york punky stuff post-punky stuff into more like indie rock and even a little bit of shoegazy stuff so the sound's a little bit bigger i think a little more expansive awesome can't wait to hear the new single which is out next week all right, now we're going to play a couple of songs from Zopa's album, La Dolce Vita. We're going to hear All That Heaven Allows, followed by Diamonds Into Dust. And then we're going to hear In Pink, everyone you can get 
the album at zopa.bandcamp.com or you could get it on vinyl via Mount Crushmore Records. That's mountcrushmore.bigcartel.com.
Like 
All right, everyone, we just heard three songs from Zopa's debut album, La Dolce Vita. We heard All That Heaven Allows. Then we heard Diamonds Into Dust. And then the final track we heard in pink. Again, you can get La Dolce Vita via zopa.bandcamp.com. Or if you want it on vinyl, it's available via Mount Crushmore Records. You can get yourself a copy via Mount Crushmore.bigcartel.com. That's mtcrushmore.bigcartel.com. All right, now Michael picked some records. We're going to talk about them. Um, we're going to start things off with X, Serrano mm. de Burger's Back off of their 1987 album, See How We Are. And this is a band that, you know, when you think of Los Angeles punk rock, this is like one of the three bands I think of, the other Black Flag and the Minutemen. Uh, And what I really like about all three of those bands was, I think within the genre of punk, they all really brought something distinctive to the table, especially X with kind of their really dark, lyrics and you know the kind of country twang that they sometimes brought yeah. to the, their music yeah that's a, this is a really the chorus of this i think is just uh tremendously beautiful um cyrano you know it's the play and um there's also a really good cover um by the flesh eaters of this song that's really good yeah another la I great think, band yeah on band but uh this, the chorus just knocks me out somehow, the melody on the chorus. There's also a recording of them in rehearsal. You can see it on YouTube, or hear it on YouTube, of them rehearsing this song. Not, you know, it's not good quality, but the, the melody is even a little bit different and really, really beautiful. But it's, I don't know, it's a great song. Yeah, really, really good song. Great record. Next up, a band you mentioned earlier, L.A. Witch, uh, Drive Your Car, which appears on their self-titled debut. It was also released as a 7-inch single. I like how these two tracks were right next to each other because I feel like L.A. Witch has a similar darkness in their lyrics and sound that X definitely has. And I feel like X almost kind of, you know, metaphorically passes the torch to a band like L.A. Witch within Absolutely. their own city. Absolutely. I think so. I mean, I saw them at Berlin one night. I hadn't heard their music. And, uh, yeah, they just get it right. You know what I mean? Their sound is really specific and formed and exciting. And, um, yeah, there's a psycho, little psychedelic thing, but also I could see that progression, like you're saying, from a band yeah. like X into what they're doing. And when you saw L.A. Witch at Berlin, that's cool. That must have been a while ago because they've kind of 
ballooned in popularity, I would say, from playing like a smaller club like that. Were you there to see them specifically or were you just there and they happened to be playing? I just read something about them and I went down and uh, I remember Jesse wasn't, I don't even know, he wasn't even aware. Uh, he was like, oh, I said, LA Witch is playing. He goes, I said, at Berlin. He, I think he was just coming back from tour, so he wasn't really up on what was happening there. So he, But he came and we watched it together. Um, and it was a great night. I think they were just a trio then, and now they have a, a second. Um, it was just, uh, I think, Sade playing um, guitar, and now they have two guitar players. Yeah, great band, and they just put out a new record last year. Everyone should definitely check it out. It's awesome. Next, Feed Me With Your Kiss by My Bloody Valentine mm. off of Isn't Anything, a band that you've cited as a huge influence. And the same interview that you did last year when you mentioned that, you, you know, that Miracle Legion show at Maxwell's was one of your favorite shows that you had ever been to. You also mentioned that you saw My Bloody Valentine uh, on tour with Dinosaur Jr. right after Loveless came out. Is that right? I did, and I didn't. I had not heard of them. I, I was going to see... We were in Athens, Georgia. We were working on a film project that never happened with Michael Stipe, and uh, we went to the 40 Watt to see Dinosaur Jr. and My Bloody Valentine opened for them on the Loveless tour, and it was, you know, not, you know, going into a small, relatively small club not knowing this band and seeing them playing that music was very profound. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, really Monumental. loud, I'm sure, too. Those <laughs> really are two loud, very loud bands. Very original. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, it was pretty wild. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you picked this song in particular, Feed Me With Your Kiss. Beautiful song. Yeah, it's a little bit, you know, it's the album before uh, Loveless. Um, you know, there's something in their melodies. Yeah, that I think that's that that's really what makes that band so special. I mean, obviously, this sound that they create and this very big, you know, very unique sound. But the the melodies are very beautiful, and I just love. I'm a big sucker for melody. Yeah, especially, and it's interesting because their sound, vocal melodies kind of blend but they still resonate so well some of their vocal melodies on especially on this record i think yeah. you know it's still very powerful even though the way they mix the record to kind of get that sound it sits you know maybe even lower than the guitars yeah and it's it's more the vocals are a little bit more prominent in this record yeah. than they are you can hear you can discern lyrics a little bit easier on isn't anything than you can on loveless totally not that that makes it better or worse but it's just there's something a little bit uh that stands out for me on that especially that song
Next, Stop It by Pylon off of Gyrate. Cool that we just mentioned Athens, Georgia, because this is like the pioneering Athens, Georgia band that came before R.E.M. and the B-52s. They're awesome. Last year, they reissued all their records as a box set. Really great band. Uh, Nice people, uh, too. Um, So I'm a huge fan. This is a great selection. Oh, it's band, another band I saw at Maxwell's. That was a really great uh, show. They, they are, that song's really... It's a band that a lot of people don't know that um, they, they should. And uh, that song especially is just... Uh, they're very unique, really. They, 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 their stuff is very potent, very rhythmic. You can dance to it. It's really fun. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure they played Maxwell's probably a couple of times in the 1980s but i have through this archiving project that i do basically how it started was i met this guy named dave mckenzie in the maxwell's facebook group and he saw that you know i was a younger guy and like really interested so he had all these live tapes because he's a bartender there so he'd record like lots of shows and stuff so through him i kind of met other people and there's this one guy that has tons of photos original photos of that period from maxwell's yeah and there's some great ones of pylon playing at maxwell's so it's just really cool to see (laughs) original photos of the band pylon playing at maxwell's because that's those are the shows that were happening at maxwell's in the very very beginning like a lot more stuff started happening in the late 80s there but some of that early stuff, like when REM first played there, uh, when the Feelies first played there, when Pylon played there, replacements. Yeah, that stuff's all pre-1985, so it's there's a little scarcer as far as live yeah. recordings and stuff like that. So it's cool when you're able to dig up a photo or anything like that of that er- era of the club. But uh, what do you remember about that show, seeing Pylon at uh, Maxwell's? Oh, just how infectious that yeah. sound is. It just really sweeps you up, you know. Kind of like in the, the way the talking heads do, you know, that, that rhythmic kind of just takes you right away. Um, yeah, it was very special. Unexpected, you know. I didn't know a lot about the band when I went to see them, and it just really, they just nailed it. That's cool that you were there. That's amazing. New York Dolls, Frankenstein, off of their 1973 self-titled album. You know, we've been talking about New York, music in New York. You know, they were a big part of New York City music history, too. That glam, glitter scene in the early 70s. Yeah, you can't really go wrong on that record, on any track. I could have chosen any track off that first album. That's just, they're just stellar. Frankenstein, I just, you know, I love his vocals, David's vocals on it, and and just, the, you know, it just has the whole Dolls vibe and sound on it. It's just a fun song. Yeah. But uh, that, al- that first album is just perfect. Yeah, such a, 
I, such a, you know, legendary New York record. Absolutely. When those plans, they don't fit your style, you get a feeling of your own or That's when you start calling you out and you just don't know what to do. So now you come around here and you're trying to take over the town. Just Next. Mazzy Star, Hala, off of uh, their 1990 debut record, She Hangs Brightly. Yeah, that's a beauty. Beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful track. Song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that When that band came out, and I never got to see them live, but uh, I bought that record when it first came out, and it was something I just listened to over and over again. It was, um, I think a lot of bands followed that sound, a lot of bands were influenced by Mazzy Star and just the sound and what they did. But actually when they first came out, it was very unique. It was really, uh, what they were doing was very new, I thought at least back then and um, very individual and just really cut through everything. It's, yeah, great vocal melodies. I know we've been talking about man. great vocal melodies Jesus. for sure. Yeah. And then your last pick, Lou Reed, Shooting Star off of Street Hassle. Uh, this is one of my favorite Lou Reed records. There's so many cool and unique things about this record from Me too. Like, how they recorded it. Uh, they use this bin oral recording technique where they use like a dummy and put two microphones in each ear or something like that to mimic right. like the sound of someone actually experiencing the music in stereo. Right. And... I know you also recently posted about uh, Rachel Humphreys. Uh, you just mm. mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you were interested in Lou Reed's relationship with her. Um, and, you know, a lot of this record is kind of about that relationship and how it ended. Oh, yeah. So the breakup. Yeah. So it's um, really powerful, great Lou yeah. Reed record, uh, a staple in you know, all the many, many solo records he's put out, one of my I favorites. agree. I think it's a... I mean, Street Hassle, the song, I mean, is just genius. One of the best things he's ever done. Uh, a Shooting Star, I just love the vibe. It's just... It's got a great... Again, a great melody. But um, there's a scene in the book, uh, Perfume Burner's Eyes, where Lou is actually writing Street Hassle. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Great scene. It's also cool. I know that it was kind of recorded live, this record, and there's right. studio recordings. There's also live recordings with overdubs. Just another, like, unique aspect of it. All right, everyone. Sadly, we're coming to the end of the program. But next week, Zopa will be playing. 
in Brooklyn at Babies All Right. They'll be celebrating the release of their new single. They'll be screening a video for the single. And of course, they'll be performing as well. 2CB will be opening. Our friends on the West Coast, Zopa, will be playing in Los Angeles tonight at Zebulon with Crush. And a week from tomorrow, Zopa will be in Philadelphia at Kung Fu Necktie with Gladdy Band. We'll see you next week at the Babies All Right Show. Go to babiesallright.com to get tickets for this very special gig. They're going fast. Before we end today's program, we're going to play one more song by Zopa. We're going to play the final track from their album, La Dolce Vida. This one's called Roll It Off Your Skin. And again, zopa.bandcamp.com to get this record or get it on vinyl via Mount Crushmore Records. That's Mount MT Crushmore dot big cartel dot com michael thank you so much all right man well thank you very much i really uh really really enjoyed talking to you Again, again. 